0: So you can stay up here for when we read the read the story, or you can go back to your seats, whichever you like. So here we go, the story of Esther, which is called the Megala. Am I pronouncing that about right? In in the celebration of Purim, um, Jewish communities will read the Megala twice through from the scroll. Usually in Hebrew. So this is um, selections from Esther three and Esther seven, and I'll do just a little brief like tie-in where they where there are some verses that we chapters that we miss. Some time later, King Ahasrus promoted Haman, <laughs> Hamadatha the Agatite's son, by promoting him above all the other officials who worked for him for him all the royal workers at the king's gate would kneel and bow down to Haman because the king had ordered it so. But Mordecai didn't bow down. So the royal workers at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why don't you obey the order? Day after day, they questioned him and he paid no attention to them. So they let Haman know about it to see whether or not Mordecai's words would hold true. He had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman himself saw that Mordecai didn't kneel or bow down to him, he became very angry. But he decided not only to kill Mordecai, for people had told him Mordecai's race, instead he planned to wipe out all the Jews. Mordecai's people, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, Ahasuer. Ahasuerus, <laughs> In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the rule of King Ahasuerus, servants drew poor, namely dice, so this is where the name Purim comes from, in front of Haman to find the best day for his plan. They tried every day, every month, and the dice chose the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, a certain group of people exist in pockets among other peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of everyone else. They refuse to obey the king's laws. There's no good reason for the king to put up with them any longer. If the king wishes, let an order be written to destroy them. And I will hand over 10,000 kikars of silver to those in charge of the king's business. That silver can go in the king's treasuries. The king removed the royal ring from his finger and handed it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, both the money and the people are under your power. Do as you like with them. So here we skip several chapters in which Esther is chosen from among the other women to be the new queen. And she and Mordecai agree on a plan for how she can use her position with the king. So we skip to chapter seven. Then the king and Haman for a banquet with Queen Esther. The king said to her, this is the second day we've met for wine. What is your wish, Queen Esther? I'll give it to you. What do you want? Anything, even half of my kingdom. Queen Esther answered, if it please the king, and if the king wishes, give me my life. That's my wish and the lives of my people too, that's my desire. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be wiped out, killed, and destroyed. If we simply had been sold as male and female slaves, I would have said nothing, but no enemy can compensate the king for this kind of damage. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is this person and where is he? Who would do such a thing? Esther replied, a man who hates an enemy, the wicked Haman. Haman was overcome with terror in the presence of the king and queen. Furious, the king got up and left the banquet for the palace garden. But Haman stood to beg Queen Esther for his life. He clearly saw that the king's mood meant a bad end for him. The king returned from the palace to the banquet room, just as Haman was kneeling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Will you even molest the queen while I am in the house, the king said. The words had barely left the king's mouth before covering Haman's face with bread. Harbona, one of the eunuchs serving the king, said, sir, look. There's the stake that that Haman made for Mordecai. The man who spoke up did something good for the king. It's standing at Haman's house, 75 feet high. Impale him on it, said the king. So they impaled Haman on that very pole he had set up for Mordecai and the king's anger went away. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. While Pastor Dustin is collecting those uh, noisemakers and instruments, I invite you to turn to number, oh wait, I think I have a mistake in my order of worship. Somebody tell me what's next. Five eight, Five eight zero. Oh, I have two orders here. To leave the stones unthrown. <clears throat> one of the most well-known quotes, which I did not use today, but which I think may be one of the ones that we do hear from Esther the most, is when Mordecai says to Esther, "It is for such a time as this that you have been chosen." for this high stakes drama for justice. So this next hymn is a challenge also for us to use the moment, each moment and each day to choose love and justice.
1: Well, what a joy to finally sort of dive into the story and really kind of feel it, right? To feel some of what we were talking about last week about the exaggeration of the story and just how um, dramatic, melodramatic it is. Esther ultimately is a story about ethnic nationalism and systems of oppression in Persian empire in the Persian empire so the jewish people were the minority people within the Persian empire and experiencing you know ethnic hatred and oppression and so this is a story they told in the midst of that and in this story we have several different kinds of responses and resistance to the empire's power and the empire's uh, oppression Last week, we got to talk about Vashti and really kind of dive into Vashti's story. Her resistance, her no, was public, right? There was this whole public scene in the six-month-long party followed by the week-long party. Her no made the systems and the powers tremble. It shamed the king, embarrassed him in a public way, and she was cast out. So that was one form of resistance that we really got to hear last week. This week, we encounter Esther's resistance to that ethnic nationalism and systems of oppression in the Persian Empire. Her resistance is from within the palace. Within the palace in a more private setting than Vashti's public no. She resists from within the palace, shrewdly negotiates within the system. After a moment of reluctance, when she needs to be encouraged by Mordecai, (laughs) after a moment of reluctance, Esther exercises this carefully strategic plan, a plan that understands how laws are made, A plan that understands how egos work. And she very carefully, cautiously, patiently executes this strategy. One author says she studiously follows royal protocols and speaks the language of power. Indeed, she is sort of a perfect example of working within the system to execute change. Her approach is just brilliant. It is just brilliant. She invites the king to two nights of wine in a row, and then he is pleased, and he says, I offer you anything, my beloved, beautiful queen, up to half my kingdom. And she says, I just want to live. I want my life. So first appeals to his emotions. Well, of course, absolutely, the king would say, absolutely, you shall have your desire. She says, I want to live and I want my people to live. Well, yes, queen, I absolutely want to give you the desire of your heart. I want you to live. I want your people to live. Yes, yes, unfortunately, my people are under threat. So she lays out this strategy perfectly until the moment when she, in that dramatic point across the room, dun-dun, Haman is the man, right? And then the king at that point, he's all, she's also laid out the economic impact to him. So at the king at that point, he's on the hook emotionally, he's on the hook economically so that by the time she says, dun-dun, it's Haman, there's nothing he can do but impale him on a 75-foot pole. <sighs> so there we go. This takes us back to what we talked about last week. This is not history. This is not a historical text. Almost no scholar thinks that it is. This is short story. This is a fantastical tragicomedy. And though it is not history for all you historians out there, it is still important. Right? It is not history, but it is essential and it is vital. This story of Esther, the short story written in its exaggerated form, was for, by, and about an ethnic minority people. It was for them. It was by them. It was about them, an ethnically minority people, Jews in the Persian Empire. It helped them to survive oppression to figure out what it means to survive under severe oppression. And it is clear this week as the story has evolved through the book of Esther that Vashti was not an anomaly given her gender. As Amy has said throughout this series, we've seen a lot of women characters. In Esther specifically, we've got now Esther, another woman. And in fact, the major plot points of this raucous good story are all driven by women. There's Vashti, there is Esther, and we didn't hear her story today, but the wife of Haman, is her name is Zeresh, and she advises him at several key points in the story, at those critical points in his plot against Mordecai. So these three women really drive the plot of Esther, which is remarkable. In this ancient short story, we have a minority people surviving their oppressor's plots against them. And some, you know, cathartic, bloody vengeance and impaling on stakes at the end, of course, you know, one of those grand epic finale fight scenes that you would get in a, I don't know, Lord of the Rings movie. So you've got this minority people surviving their oppressor's plots against them, and you have the minority gender driving the plot. So part of the point of this story is just representation of the powerless among the powerless. We have all heard and we all know representation matters, right? Thanks to Dustin, when the pastors were talking about this uh, scripture last week, whenever it was, it was introduced to Heartstopper. (laughs) And Dustin, in thinking about this story of Esther and the importance of representation, shared with us, how many of you have seen Heartstopper? Is this familiar? It was a graphic novel turned into a Netflix series. Um, and I, so it's taken me down this whole rabbit hole, which is very exciting. Thank you, Dustin. And one of the um, headlines that I read when I was going down my little rabbit hole was, young gay people being out and happy? It's revolutionary! Meet the Heartstopper generation. So Heartstopper tells this really like lovely story, young queer love story in high school. And uh, part of what the commentary is around this is that millennial generation is watching this show and waiting for the trauma, right? Waiting for the plot to take a turn for the nasty. And instead, it doesn't. It doesn't. We get a queer story. Trauma is eschewed for the celebration of young and queer love in full bloom, blossoming in the place where trauma used to live. And what a delight that is in the generational shifts. So that older queer folks are experiencing this as a bit of healing for the stories that they grew up with, or the stories they did not grow up with. Representation matters. It matters in children's media. Races, genders, abilities. And as I heard reporting, report on NPRs, I was driving home from church this week. You know, I was thinking about this text, and I heard on NPR in elementary school classrooms, where men of color, men in general, are underrepresented, men of color very specifically, wildly underrepresented, and what impact that has on kids growing up. Or, as I've been following my friend and Mennonite pastor Ruth Harder on Instagram, she's got this whole Stained glass theology. It's very interesting if you want to see a Mennonite following stained glass theology. So I've been following her recently. She posted um, a number of images talking about representations of Jesus and humans and the divine and stained glass and how much peach skin there is. And what that does for people of faith, communities of faith, communities of all races and, and colors, to have that peach skin reinforced over and over again, representation matters. And so, what a unique and wonderful hero Esther is. Yay! Yay, <laughs> Yay Esther. Thanks again to Robin for Brenda Salter McNeil, who, as I mentioned last week in her most recent book, Becoming Brave, uses the story of Esther as her framework for understanding her own emerging call um, within the racial reconciliation movements within the church. In reflecting on Esther, she says, now it is Esther's turn to find the courage to speak truth to power. This is what author Ada Maria Isasi-Diaz describes in her book Mujerista Theology as the declaration of women to assert themselves in conversations to which they have not been invited. The declaration of women to assert themselves in conversations to which they have not been invited by saying, and here you're going to find out that I really do not speak Spanish, Hablar. Can, um, can someone else say that first word for me? Who speaks Spanish? Permítanme. Permítame. Thank you. Permítanme hablar. Permítanme hablar. hablar. Permit me to speak. Got it. Permit me to speak. In other words, I have something to say. As Esther moves forward by faith, she will discover that she is not just a mousy little girl who happened to win a beauty contest, but that she is, in fact, a warrior. All of the struggles, heartache, and adversity she has been through have proven that she is a woman who is brave and stronger than she thinks. Indeed, representation matters, and and representation mattered to Brenda Salter McNeil to see the example of Esther as one who was in a position for just a time as this to speak truth to power. So this is part of why Esther made it into the canon. I do believe the powerless, she was the powerless among the powerless. She represented the powerless among the powerless, perfectly using her access to power to protect her people and get a little vengeful comeuppance while she was at it. It is, after all, a short story and not history. And I think this is a key, that this is not just representation for representation's sake. But for a specific end, being able to speak up for the vulnerable is what Esther did. Being able to do what is right, being able to speak truth to power, which is exactly what we talked about last week with positionality. I think it was Amy who brought up that idea of positionality that we learned with Flora larson that's exactly what esther is she is in she uses her positionality to affect change and it's a word i think for me and for many of us as we consider our own place in our own empire as we consider our own place of people of faith people of privilege people with some access to some power It's a good invitation to think about what is our own position and role in the empire. For example, if you've got um, relationships in the city um, council or uh, parks department, this is an excellent time to sidle up and cash in some relational capital for the sake of our neighbors. As we wrap our series on the festival scrolls and these forgotten Books of the Hebrew Bible don't appear much in Christian circles. What a joy it is to land at the story of an unlikely and reluctant hero. To remember that we too belong in our communities, that we too have a role to play in our community. We too have the capacity to affect change. We too are part of God's beloved family. Thanks be. Thanks be to God. May we all use our positions to effect that change together. Amen.